Uh, it came with the dark side. You give access to people, access to credit to people who've never had it before without education and it immediately turns predatory. I was talking to people who had a debit card and had a credit card, but couldn't explain to me how they worked differently from family-owned businesses to lend them money. They would write down if the mother was pregnant and things like that because it, they would take that into account in their creditworthiness. So just stuff you wouldn't see in the U.S. that is totally happening in the microfinance industry. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of You're Not Your ROAS. Today we have a heater for you. We have Cash Allred. Cash is par a partner at Sweater, or where, where's cool. your? Okay, yeah, amazing. Principal uh, at a really cool company called uh, Sweater Ventures, and so we're going to go into kind of some nerdy stuff about VC. We're going to talk about kind of the macroeconomic environment, um, what he looks at in terms of uh, investing. But before we do that, we're going to learn a little bit about Cash. Uh, Cash, where's this podcast find you at today? I'm calling it from Boulder, Colorado. Um, Beautiful Boulder. And uh, have, why don't I start a little bit with me, and then we can go right into Sweater, because a lot of people have questions about Sweater, who we are, what makes us different, how we actually uh, legally do what we do, right? Um, I love so, that. So, yeah, just, just uh, you know, cut me off or, or point me in the direction you think it would be interesting. <laughs> right? I, I, I tend to get on these tracks, and uh, so just, just make sure I'm going on the right one. But... Uh, personally, I grew up in rural Utah. My dad was a fucker yeah. and a coal miner. Um, so people ask me why my, you know, what do my parents know I'd be a venture capitalist? My name's Cash, yeah. right? The, the answer is no. Uh, they still don't. Too perfect. They do. Uh, <laughs> so uh, I was born emergency C-section a few weeks early, the week before my dad's health insurance kicked in. They paid cash. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, and so the other name they were considering at the time was Chance, um, which would have been a far worse venture capitalist name, by the way. Um, but, uh, they decided to name me Cash for that reason. I was a Cash baby and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's worked out pretty great since then. But, um, that's an amazing story. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. And it's true. Like every word of it's true. So that's what, we, that's what makes it really interesting. But, um, when uh, I, I studied information systems um, by education, focused in analytics and product management, um, but really even in undergrad. BYU, correct? That's right. Yep. Yeah, yeah. Brigham, amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, Fantastic. So love my time there and spent a lot of time even in undergrad at a few different private equity groups and venture funds. Um, the, the most interesting experience prior to Sweater was actually three years helping build a tech-enabled impact fund. So I joined when I was still a student. And uh, the, the strategy at the beginning was to be a traditional venture fund that leveraged university networks globally to find impactful models in, in developing countries and invest in them. That's um, interesting. What we found is that to do impact investing right, you can't really use the same source of capital that other venture funds use because your incentives are slightly different. And we, we landed on donor-advised funds um, what's interesting about donor advised funds is that any individual in the country, no matter what your income is, could use a donor advised fund at the end of year. For, let's say that you had a big income year or you're an entrepreneur and you sold your company and you know you want to be philanthropic, um, but you don't know where to give that money away yet, right? You've been focused on your business. So you can actually park that money in a donor advised fund, get the tax write off that year that you sold your business or whatever else, and then grant that money out over time. So while that money's parked, though, what? it's invested, okay? So if I set up a donor-advised fund with Fidelity Charities, I park that money in there. It's no longer mine, technically. I, I granted it to Fidelity Charities, but I can advise how that money is granted out in its final grant uh, over time. So um, at that fund, we uh, doubled down on this donor-advised fund piece. Um, we built some tech on the back end. And, you know, there, there were several of us involved in this. I was just part of this journey and, and uh, played my part in finding the companies and, and meeting with donor-advised fund uh, donors. But uh, there's a lot to be said around that experience of finding a unique source of capital, building the technology so that you can, like, access that source of capital yeah. at scale, and then aligning that with your unique investment strategy. 
And so uh, that was a really powerful experience. And at the end of that time, it was I was ready to move on to my next thing. And I had accepted a job at one of our portfolio companies in India um, right when the pandemic hit. I actually got my visa March 15th. And then the next day, oh my gosh. we couldn't book flights out of the country. It was wild. Oh, my gosh. Um, so uh, it was during that kind of period of time when I, instead of moving to India, I joined on the a strategy team of a large company in Utah called Lucid Software, uh, one yep. of the unicorns based out of Salt Lake City, um, to kind of bide my time and, and say, do we move to India? What's the next step? Right? It was uh, kind of a limbo time for us. And that's when I met Jesse at Sweater. So I'll stop before I start getting into Sweater, but that's kind of my story and journey uh, from you know farm kid to uh, investing. But um, so. From the cash baby to deploying the cash. That's incredible. So let me plant a stake in that donor. So that's a really interesting. So this is, so what the deets there are. So say I you know make half a million dollars this year and then I want to ratchet down some of that tax liability so I could donate just to make the math easy, say like a hundred K and then that hundred K is allocated and parked in some sort of holding vehicle that then I get to advise how that capital gets deployed. So um, you, depending on who is hosting the DAF, they will offer you investment options and they'll offer you granting options. So in, in the meantime, you, that money's invested while it's waiting to be granted out in its final life cycle. Um, Got it. You do advise and you have advisory rights. You don't have dictated rights, but you have advisory rights to sure. you talk to whoever's hosting that donor advised fund to grant it out. So how a lot of people use it at the fund I was at is they will put money into a donor advised fund because their tax accountant says, you need to give money away sure. for this tax liability. I'm like, okay, we'll put in this yep. donor advised fund. And then they forget about it, right? Because if you get it away to Fidelity, you know, you put it into a Fidelity Charities, which is a competitor of that fund, um, they want to continue to collect fees on it, right? So they're not going to come and sure. ask you what to do with it. So there's actually a trillion dollars in donor advised funds locked up in the U.S. right now. It's insane. That's like the D2C. It's like the D2C equivalent of gift cards. Yeah. <laughs> it's like the best, exactly. like for for a VC firm. It's like the best thing ever. It's just like just give me my two and twenty and let's party. Like Absolutely. <laughs> that's incredible. And and so, that's incredible. So what we want to do is we build a firm where we incentivize our um, donors to actually invest the money earlier. So instead of the money sitting in the stock market and then being granted out at the end, we were yep. offering them options to invest that money, whether it's through uh, debt. We had a debt fund that we were doing with some companies internationally, yep. uh, equity, or even some more blended capital, like things like recoverable grants, where we're granting it to a nonprofit, but we're expecting some percent of that money back in a year or two. So now you have a donor advice fund and, and you as an entrepreneur and working with startups all the time, this will resonate. If you're an entrepreneur and you have the chance to give away your money once or to give away your money 10 times, which one would you choose, yeah. right? If you can invest that money, have it, I mean, at least most of it or all of it coming back, because these are risky, impactful investments, right? Come back and then sure. you can do that. Cycle that money three, five, 10 times before you finally grant it out at the end. Like that's a really powerful offering. And so, um, and of so course you can, you can have a portion of it invested and then you're keeping the rest of it for places, you know, you're going to grant it out, whether it's to your university or your church or your, your nonprofit that you follow for a long time, but you will want some of it through this entrepreneurial spirit that you've built to be invested, right. And to support entrepreneurs, make a difference in the world. So we, uh, we that is some crazy. great companies that way. And the, 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 again, the learnings were, if you have a unique source of capital that's unlocked with technology, yeah. what can you do, right? Yep. And uh, that's where I think the story with Sweater starts getting interesting for my journey, but. That is so fascinating. So how did you get to India? That's, that's I, pretty, I mean, obviously it's a great investment. No, I know, but how did you get into that, that area of like, oh, I'm gonna up and move, where, where is it Mumbai or where were you gonna move to? And then how did, how did that, all manifests so, so cash baby Brigham young and then now you're going to run a fund in india or what were you going to do over there so uh this was uh a company that we were working with at the impact fund and okay. i mean we were investing in companies in latin america southeast asia africa yep 
Um, this yep. one happened to be in Bangalore, India. The, the yep. company itself was pretty simple. It's a BPO outsource group, so back office okay. operations. Um, their unique thesis was that they would employ people with physical disabilities. In India, oh, okay, cool. there's a history with the caste system of people with physical disabilities yep. not being uh, treated the same or just you know kind of yep. the bottom caste of society. So by employing yep. them, just even a job is life-changing. Um, yeah. Their first clients were all microfinance banks. And so as the microfinance industry really grew and developed in India, um, yeah. they grew with it. And a lot yeah. of these microfinance banks are doing paper documents being sent out to villages all over India. People are signing paper documents, bringing them back, and then using these BPOs to process loans. And that that was the core of their business. And they had other businesses associated with it. But they had when I was talking to them, they had like 1,500 employees. Over half of them were either blind, deaf, uh, maybe they could walk, but there was some sort of physical handicap that they were dealing with. Right. And so I actually went out for a month in the summer of, let's see, eight long. Yes. Uh, and was spent a month with them working on some specific projects. They're considering expanding their offering to other countries. There are just several strategic things that we were yep. working with them in an advisory role as part of the fund. And at the end of that month, they're like, hey, you should, you should come out and work with us for a couple of years. And at the time I was like, oh yeah, well, um, that'd be interesting. Go to India for a couple of years. I already lived in Peru um, for nine months working for a microfinance uh, education company. And so the idea of going to India with my wife and kids sounded exciting. Um, and cool. my wife, to my surprise, got on board. So we were able to get on that. Um, by the way, can you hear background noise? Or no? Nah, it's okay. It's okay. okay you're, you're good looking enough. We can, we, it'll, it'll work. Um, that's okay. a really cool story. Wow. What did you, and so how did you end up in Peru? Same, 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 but different. So working for the microfinance out there as well? No, this was different. Um, so, okay. uh, I took some, so I'm trying to decide what details to share here. So, um, <laughs> it was compacted. Redacted. Uh, exactly. <laughs> so the, the 15 second version, and then we can dive into whatever you want is, uh, I um, learned Spanish. So, you know, those who aren't familiar with Brigham Young University, it's a church school, right? So prior to going yep. to BYU, I served a two-year religious mission in Phoenix, Arizona. Learned Spanish, yep. had a great experience. So now I have this connection. Born this in Tucson and, and grew up in Phoenix for a little while. Okay, nice, nice. So yeah, yeah, yeah. you've seen, you know, you probably, who knows, maybe you even saw me down there, white shirt and tie, right? But <laughs> so... Uh, that was that was the kind of starting point, and then um, yep. when I later got connected with other people working in Latin America in this microfinance education world, I found it super interesting. Um, I got a chance to take some time off school and go down there for about nine months to help open a new branch of this uh, company in Cusco. So yep. the model of the company is that as microfinance was developing and growing, uh, it came with the dark side. You give access to people, access to credit to people who've never had it before without education yep. and it immediately turns predatory. Yep. Um, yep. I was talking to people who had a debit card and had a credit card, but couldn't explain to me how they worked differently from one another. And right. that's really, <laughs> I could even tell you stories about in the loan officers, like due diligence that they would do with uh, family owned businesses to lend them money. They would write down if the mother was pregnant. And things like that because it, they would take that into account in their creditworthiness. So just stuff right. you wouldn't see in the U.S. that is totally happening yeah. in the microfinance industry. So uh, the company I worked with had established partnerships with two of the largest banks in Peru, BCP and Credinca. Yep. And yep. so they were wrapping our educational product inside their loan with the idea that we could lower default rates and then eventually they borrow yep. more money. And we were actually yep. reducing default rates by quite a bit, which was exciting. But so I show up as a as a young kid, partly because my girlfriend at the time broke up with me, and I wanted to get. <laughs> and uh, now, by the time I got back, she called me back. We're now married. Okay, so this is no way. Yeah, same girl. 
Oh my yeah. gosh. Two, two kids with one more on the way. So it, it did work oh, out. Oh, congrats. ever after. But um, that's that's uh, the story of how I went to Peru, got involved in microfinance and uh, impact investing. And then when I came back, that's actually when I joined the impact fund. How cool. Did you do get to do Machu Picchu? I did. Yep. Uh, I you know, as a startup, you work a lot, so I didn't do a ton of vacationing in. Yeah, yeah. But I did make sure I took a, a weekend to Machu Picchu, and I was at Machu Picchu when Lauren called me and uh, wanted to get back together. So Machu Picchu. Really? Yes. Divine intervention. <laughs> That's amazing. Um, okay, a couple more questions, and then let's dive into sweater. What is your approach to mentoring? I see you do some mentoring for tech stars, if I'm correct, right? Yeah. What's your approach there? How do you how do you see mentoring? Like what? Because that's been one of the things personally that has been always like I want to do it. I need to find a mentor, but it's always just been kind of back of the napkin. Like let's figure it out later, kind of stuff. And so it's always great to hear and see people kind of paying it forward and mentoring. So how do you approach that? What are, what are your thoughts there? Like what what do you think or how do you make your mentoring impactful? Sure, I found that. Let's split up formal mentorships with informal mentorships. Yep. Uh, your formal mentorships are going to be people like your family, yep. uh, your boss, people yep. who have an obligation to you that, um, or you to them, that forces long-term interactions and the context is given ahead of time. Okay. Got it. So... Um, I would even say what I do with tech stars is more of in the informal category because I don't know these people, right? And I don't have an obligation yep. to help them. I, I'm choosing to. So yep. I think it, the thing about formal mentorship as a mentee that's really helped me is I grew up on a farm. I didn't know anyone uh, in the business world yep. or even in venture capital. But what I did learn growing up in a really small town is that your formal mentorships are really valuable because um, they know you to a degree that other people don't, and their insights are often really valuable. So anything you can do to show your formal mentors that you're open for feedback or you make it easy for them to give you feedback or when they say something, you, yep. you, you hear them out as opposed to just shutting them down too soon because they actually do know you, right? Yep. Um, now on the informal side, uh, that you know, I learned more about that going to, to BYU and other places where I started interacting with people that had no clue who I was. Um, and the, the workflow is actually different as a mentee. What you need to do then at that point is say, how can I find people that can help me with a specific thing, a specific problem? Um, and what's good about that is you can give that person all the context they need around the specific piece of your life, whether it's like, should I take this job or not? Or how should I think about the specific problem in my business? They can give you something valuable, but it's up to you to prep all the context to make that work. So with Techstars, yep. um, I often just make it easy on us both by uh, having that, that interaction framed up properly ahead of time so that yep. they can give me everything I need. It could be as valuable as I can to them. Um, and that tends to work pretty well. So uh, I don't know if you have any other thoughts on that, but that's kind of how I think. No, that's, that's beautiful. That bifurcation between formal and informal is such a really powerful one that I've never thought of before. I think that's a beautiful way. And somebody also described mentorship to me in three layers where you want to have somebody you aspire to so that that's somebody kind of you want to be. That's your muse, if you will. And you want to have somebody kind of on your level that you can talk to in a you know, respectful and not necessarily combative way, but like a, a, a real talk way, you know what I'm saying? Where you respect their views and like, you know, that if they're saying something, it's not coming from a place of hate or meanness or something like that. It's just like, Hey, I, I want you to be better. Here's how you can be better. And then there's somebody below you where you can kind of pay things forward. And that kind of like three tier mentorship system can be really helpful to, again, you, you see where you want to be with your muse. You can talk to people, uh, somebody that's on your level. So you can kind of have these real time feedback decisions that you can bounce somebody off of. And then you're kind of helping somebody that wants to be where you are and give them advice. Cause I think that third, a lot of times what, what I've found in kind of my little dabblings in mentorship is it's a really nice uh, return to beginner's mind when you can get so deep into certain like areas of specificity, 
you forget about X, Y, and Z and being able to see that area with new eyes or even just articulating why you think what you think is really, really powerful because you, you're just like, this is this is my views or these are my opinions or this is my belief. And you're like, oh, why do I even, and it kind of, it's there's some forced introspection when you teach. Um, so I think that that kind of third layer can be really impactful as well. But um, yeah, I, I just, that informal, uh, formal is a really cool way to look at it as well. I've never heard that before. That's really sweet. To, to your point on the someone, let's call it above at your level or below to use the three tiers that you said, I have found that the best experiences I've had as a mentee or a mentor have come from not equating like role or wealth or age with those three things. The best yes. mentors I've totally. had have been my peers. Okay. Yes. And and it's because they actually have the most relevant data to my experience so that it takes less time to get up to speed. And so they yep. may be above me in one thing, but below me in another thing. And so I can have one person that fills all three of those which is really powerful. And I, I just don't know if people appreciate that. I tell founders, a, for example, okay, say your thing and I'll, and I'll share mine in a second. But No, I was just going to say that's a beautiful way to look. I've never thought of it that way, but you're absolutely right, depending on the vertical or that, that area of their life. Because uh, that, that had been one of my challenges is that I, so I read a lot of business memoirs and things of that nature. And there's people that I really respect their business acumen and like what they've accomplished, but then they're just absolutely horrible humans. And I'm like, I don't, I don't want to be that, you know, I want to build an empire, but at the same time, like, I don't want to be that person that is, um, you know, their life's falling apart. Their partner hates them. Their kids think they're terrible humans as well. Like, and so, but at the same time, they've built this absolute empire that I'm in, uh, in Marvel of in, in terms of business. And so it's really interesting that you say that one person can be those three things because, you know, there's different areas of your life. Sorry, I totally sidetracked. Uh, well, you had something else to add. So I'll just give an example of this piece, which is when, I, when we talk to entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs feel like they have to talk to venture capitalists to get fundraising advice. Okay. Yeah. I would argue that the best people to talk about fundraising advice is people who have fundraised like other entrepreneurs yes. <laughs> that are in the same boat as you or that just went through it. And so well put. So, you know, your peers in many instances can be a better and they and they have similar incentives to share things yep. that you want to hear anyway as opposed to someone who's on the outside looking in. But um yeah. Yeah, I think the incentive align I don't think there's good and bad. I think people just do um, what's, you know, they're incentivized to do in a lot of times. And so uh, making sure that incentive alignment is there and also being able to understand like a, how somebody's making their money and b some semblance of transparency, I think allows for more vulnerability, more vulnerability allows for more trust, more, uh, kind of deep connection. But uh, I'm, I'm totally with you there. I think that's just such a fascinating, awesome way to look at it. Um, okay. Two more questions and then we'll go to the value add segment. We can really nerd out. Um, what do you like? How do you stay focused? Do you use any systems? Like, how do you plan your day? Do you do to do's? Like, how, how do you? Because it sounds like you're just you're doing so many things and you're always inundated. You have deal flow. You have all these things that you need to make sure that, you know, the, the T's get crossed and I's get dotted. Is there any systems or frameworks that you can suggest to our listeners to help keep them more focused? Uh, that's a great question. I think this is where I'm really grateful that I chose the educational path that I did. Um, yep. so the lessons from software development and product management applied to an investor mindset is really powerful. So, uh, there's a, you know, a book that many people are familiar with getting things done. How, what kind of system yep. can you do to, to make sure that even if you're busy and you have a lot of work to do, your mind isn't burdened with to-dos or things that are stressing that. you so that I, I personally feel even though I have a lot of emails to answer and I have a lot of decks to review and I have a lot of work to do that I, my mind is actually freed up to be creative Love and to that. thoughtfully think about things. And so um, personal tools I use, I live out of the CRM tool that we've used, uh, chosen. It's Affinity. I don't okay. love Affinity per se, more than other CRMs. It's the one that we've chosen to use, but I use it religiously and I'm a deep user of it. Deep user of Notion. Yep. Um, yeah. Big Notion user myself. Yeah. I love it. And um, I use 
as much as I can on the, the software side, but I also think people underappreciate how powerful a virtual assistant can be. Um, so yep. even though I do use tech, I also use a virtual assistant and, um, not to the degree yet that I maybe should, but there's a lot that there that is about, um, it's not just about free time. It's about just freeing up mind space and remembering the things, uh, that you've learned as opposed to things that you have to do by put offloading it to a system. But that's brilliant. I, I really love that idea of being able to keep your mind space clear, even if you're busy. Cause that's, that's really to me the path. Cause I think that especially with high performers, you get into a place like you want to do everything you want to be everywhere you want. And then you can get to a kind of analysis paralysis where it's just like, there's so much to do that you just, you just stop like a deer in the headlights versus like being able to keep that kind of karmic flow, if you will, or something where you just still have that nice flow through your mind, through your life, through your body and being able to really um, push that energy through is it's, it's so important. Cause I, I mean, personally been there myself where it's like just removing that one thing of like fold the laundry or that, that thing that was always just like having, like you said, having to do's in your head is so, it sounds so benign but it can be so just absolutely soul crushing. Like it's like death by a thousand paper cuts taxing. Exactly. Like you're just, you know, these just little things that kind of gnar on you, gnar on you, gnar on you. And to your point, it also starts to consume almost that, that mind gas that is really useful for products or thoughts that can actually be, you know, 10 X kind of six Sigma type of events where it's just like, Oh my gosh, what an incredible, idea that is or what a cool thought that is versus like oh man i forgot to do my laundry or i forgot to send this email back or blah 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 where it's like I, these trivialities that are they really moving the needle no i will also add that if you're going to spend the time to think about something you have to have something to show for it at the end okay and this is something that vcs are actually That's good really at that, good that i think other people can do is we can make it this we will make a decision whether or not to invest in a company but those thoughts are all documented in something, whether it's an investment memo or a slide deck or so CRM good. or something. And so I think that entrepreneurs sometimes do a lot of work. And at the end of the day, they, they haven't been thoughtful about either documentation or other things that shows what they did. And so some people will say, well, man, this person's a machine. They crank out all of these things but it's the same work that someone else is doing. They're just better and more efficient at documenting and producing something real that persists, even if they were to leave the company, right? And I, and I think that's a that's really so underappreciated beautiful. secret. That's so beautiful. I mean, that's kind of the, what was it? Uh, Mythbusters was, that was kind of the joke on that, on that TV show where he was like, you know, all we do is a bunch of crazy stuff, but at the same time, like we just document it. And like that documentation is kind of what separates like actual the scientific method versus just people doing silly stuff. And so I, I that's so, so spot on where um, and to your point, there there is a certain recency bias that happens that when you do document all this stuff and you can do some some post hoc reviews, and you're like, oh, my gosh, that's actually a really brilliant insight. But in the moment, it's it's seems so vanilla. And so having that documentation and understanding and building a system around that. That's wonderful. I love that cash. That's fantastic. Um, okay. Last question for you. And then we'll go to value add. Um, what's the nicest thing someone's done for you? The nicest thing someone's done for me. Yeah. Wow. I, uh, I feel really lucky. Um, so having grown up in a small town, your successes are celebrated beyond maybe what they should. And you're, your yeah. failures are punished maybe farther beyond what they should. Like you hear horror stories about growing up in a small town and you get caught doing one thing and now your reputation is destroyed. Yeah. Okay. The same You're is true. Pariah. Uh-huh. Um, my town that I grew up in is, I think the last census said it was like 850 people. Okay. Um, oh, so wow. I'm talking really small town. We recognize each other by our vehicles as much as we do our faces and our houses and everything else. So, um, when I was growing up in that experience, uh, I got into sports. Um, I was a wrestler. Uh, my grandpa lived across the street. And I think this combination of my grandpa, um, who was old, single, retired, waking up every day and saying, what am I going to do with my grandkids today, 
was really important entrepreneurial training. We started several businesses together growing up. Um, oh, that's cool. And uh, the other person would be when I was wrestling, the head wrestling coach. He was the, uh, you know, small town. He was the uh, high school counselor, the head wrestling coach, <laughs> cross country coach. He taught driver's ed. Um, he was a religious leader in the community. He um, was on search and rescue. Like, he was a total oh, pillar, wow. okay? And um, he called BYU and had an advisor stop at my high school on his routes to visit all the high schools to talk to me and one other student. That's cool. And That's pretty he, cool. And he helped me apply for scholarships. Um, and, he like, there were just so many things, micro things, throughout the course of the four years I'd interacted with him that really set me up to like make that transition from small farm kid to like competitive college professional that could go out and do things right and uh, i that's why i say it's it's a hard question to answer is because most of the people who've had the biggest impact on my life it's been over the course of years and uh yeah. for, for that person i mean i joined the cross country team just to spend more time with him and uh, like that's that's the kind of things early on in my life that I think it made a big difference. That's beautiful, man. I love that. I think there's just there's something so noble and honorable in helping shepherd kind of the next generation into being you know good productive humans in in society and also helping them build a a, a good understanding of what a good human is. That's that's wonderful. Absolutely love that. Um, Cash, we're in the value add segment. This is why people bought the ticket. So, okay, tell us why did you join Sweater Ventures? But first, give us kind of the skinny on what Sweater Ventures is. So, Sweater Ventures is really the first venture fund that anyone, regardless of accreditation status in the U.S., can invest in. So, when I met Jesse, again, I was at Lucid Software. I was getting ready to move to India. But I had this context in my back of my mind of investing in a unique source of capital and tech, Okay. Jesse is now raising pre-seed money for a fintech. And he says, Cash, this fintech is going to support a venture fund that anyone can invest in. No limit on the number of investors you can have. And I'll get into the nuance of why this is special in just a second. But yep. my, the bells in my head went off immediately, right? I think about the impact fund I was at and Sweater, and they're both unique sources of capital powered by technology yep. that unlocks a lot of powerful things on the deployment side. And um, was it long after that that I joined Sweater and never moved to India? So I ended up moving to Colorado instead of uh, India from Utah. And so if you compare Sweater to a traditional venture fund, traditional venture funds operate under what's called Regulation D. Uh, you have the Financial Securities Act that's from the 1940s. The SEC was born out of all of that. And venture capital app actually operates under an exemption. So uh, most um, assets have to be registered with the SEC, right? They're, and that's how, you know, uh, that is why a retail investor can buy stock. It's because it's publicly registered with the SEC and there's certain reporting requirements that make it so the government says, yes, uh, retail investors can invest in this. There are exemptions that make it so you can do things that are uh, have less transparency or um, don't have the same reporting requirements, but they're only allowed yep. to what are called accredited or qualified investors, meaning you have uh, over a certain amount of income or assets or you take certain tests. Um, but the government just basically says, if you're not rich already, you're probably not smart enough to know what <laughs> to do with your money. And we've legislated this... this uh, um, you know, wealth uh, disparity between those yeah. who have money have access to the best investments and yep. those who don't have money don't, right? And so Jesse, the founder of Sweater, he spent years looking at this problem uh, and uh, was really trying to find the best way to do it and eventually talked to the right people at the SEC to find out what fund structure made the most sense for an illiquid asset class like venture capital or early stage startups, but that mm -hmm. is registered and, and satisfies all of the needs that a retail investor would want. 
And it came down to liquidity more so than risk. Um, people right. kind of joke like, how do we allow people to gamble and invest in crypto and do all these incredibly risky things, but not a managed venture fund with a professional at the helm? Amazing. And uh, <laughs> like liquidity was a big issue. So the fund structure they landed on was is called an interval fund. So the way it operates is that um, anyone who downloads the Sweater app, you can go to the app store today, type in Sweater, download the app, and when you create a count, you will see a ticker price for the Sweater Cashmere Fund. Looks just like a ticker price for a mutual fund. And when you buy shares of the Sweater Cashmere Fund, you now have shares of a fund that owns parts of lots of private companies. So your, your money's actually diversified on day one, and then yep. uh, you get your money out by requesting a redemption when that opens up once uh, every six months or when one of those individual assets exits or sells and you can take a cash distribution. And what's powerful about That's this cool. is um, the regulation D funds um, have a limit of 99 investors. So okay. you not only have the problem of if you have to be accredited, accredited to invest in a venture fund, but if it's a $100 million venture fund, you have to write a million dollar check. Right. So there's even lots of accredited investors, picture doctor, doctors, lawyers, entrepreneurs that can't get a check into a traditional venture fund, but they could put money into Sweater. Okay. And uh, we launched that fund publicly in June, um, have over 5,000 investors in the fund, you know, uh, oh, wow. quite a bit more than that who have downloaded the app and are following and watching what we're doing you know, tens of thousands, I, I don't know the exact number now, but between 50 and 70,000 people on our mailing lists. And this is a big community of people that have been watching venture wow, for a long cool. time that are entrepreneurs or they worked at venture backed companies and they, they're kind of like students of the game or they're watching it on TV, but have never had a chance to write a check. And so uh, we're the first option to enable them to do that. Wow, I'm gonna have to throw some money in. This is cool. So you get the app, you download it and then you basically throw. So, you know, that is so neat. And so there's two two times a year that you can then liquidate any type of cash or if there's an exit within a portfolio company, then that will also open up a liquidity event for you as well. So uh, you can, so if there's shares in the fund, you can redeem your shares, yep. sell them essentially yep. twice a year or when something in the portfolio sells, you can take a distribution, which is actually different than selling your shares. Um, got it, got it, got it. But most of the people will honestly just re have the setting set so that if a liquidity event happens, it just recycles back into the fund um, and just purchase more shares. That is, yeah. and that is so, so interesting. A lot of people compare us. They're like, so how is this different from WeFunder or uh, like any of these other uh, Republic or equity crowdfunding platforms? And there's a lot of them out there. Mm -hmm. So we have to distinguish between angel investing and venture capital. So angel investing is I, as an investor, choose one company to put money in. Venture capital right. is pooling money together as investors and having a professional that is vetting opportunities and competing to get into the very best deals for you, and it's diversified. Yep. And so equity crowdfunding, Reg CF, all, you know, whatever, whatever term you know it by is really important piece of the puzzle, but it's for angel investing, not for venture capital. And and yeah. the risk profiles are just different depending uh, depending on what you're looking for. So that that is really interesting. So there's a couple couple things at play here. So one, you're not only so you're essentially opening up the market in two different ways. One, I was think I was looking on the website, it's like five hundred or a thousand dollar minimum. Like five hundred minimum. Super, super yeah. Five hundred. So super, super accessible, which is amazing. Where to your point, you're not writing million dollar checks where it's like, you know, a million dollars is not nothing. And then not only that, like a lot of times you're in these very high risk, high reward situations where that million dollars could quite frankly go to zero very quickly. So not only that, but the other thing is you're getting into this deal flow that candidly you wouldn't have access to otherwise. So it's right. you're giving an on-ramp to people and then you're also giving them access to top tier investments. That's really cool. Yeah. And when we deploy the capital, the entrepreneurs love it for this reason. Any, I mean, you could just Google it. What should I look for in a VC? 
And all the blog yeah. posts will say, look for a VC that gives you more than capital. It gives you connections, gives you customers, gives you yeah. employees. Okay. Try doing that with 99 limited partners as opposed yeah. to 5,000. Okay. Yep. Now, as, as Sweater scales to tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of investors over time, our tech will enable us to provide tons of value to the entrepreneurs we invest in because we have those connections at scale. And so cool. I think the future of uh, raising venture money is going to be who is your strategic investor that knows the space really well and who is your retail yep. fund, right? And Sweater yep. is the retail fund. Yep. So um, it's been when you, you know, you mentioned like our portfolio and how you saw some really interesting names in there. It's because the entrepreneurs saw what we could do. And currently we're only co-investing with other VCs anyway. We're not, we're not necessarily leading yep. rounds. So leading. it was pretty easy for us to write our, our check alongside those other VCs and these really great startups for the value we provide. That's incredible. What, um, and you don't have to disclose if you don't want to, but what's the average check size that you guys are usually deploying? What's the range normally? Uh, so far, our checks are between 250K and a million dollars. So they're sizable checks. Okay, cool. Um, yeah, yeah. And seed and Series A rounds. Okay, cool. Yeah, so the Series A is a little later, but the seed's fun stuff. The seed, you're really into, like, there can be an, a, a really big up into the right. And to be fair, the Series A can as well, but sometimes you'll have some of that, that growth will get a little bit eaten up by the time you get to the A, but... That's really cool. That is such an interesting idea. Now, in terms of is the cashmere fund capped? Like, are you going to, or is it like a rolling fund where you're just going to perpetually raise? Or is it capped where it's like, hey, we're going to hit a quarter billion dollars of capital raise and then we'll start, you know, another. Because first off, I love the play, right? So sweater and then cashmere, not yeah. lost upon me. I mean, obviously one for fantastic names, cash baby. Um, so that's fantastic. But um, how does that structure? So is it just a perpetually, you're just going to perpetually raise or is there kind of a fund limit that you guys are going to say, okay, cool, we're going to close this fund out and then start a new one? The, this is what's powerful about stepping outside of Reg D. Um, Reg D, yep. like the that fund structure, those terms like rolling fund and capped, like that's all part of something that's unique to that fund structure. Our fund structure Got is... It that we can take investors from anyone at any time. A lot of our investors are doing recurring monthly investments into the fund the same way they do into their say. 401k or crypto like a DCA wallets. almost, right? Exactly. And so That's cool. Um we will be taking new cash into the fund over, you know, a long period of time. The thesis of the Cashmere Fund is in companies that benefit everyday people at work or at home that they want to see built in, you know, that that are the cashmere fund is investing in the companies that make the life better of the everyday person in the future. So, and you can see that as you go through the portfolio, be like, Oh, I could see how someone would use this at work, or I could see myself using this at yep. work or at home. Yep. Um, there will be other funds on sweater. And it could be that the next fund is a climate fund, or maybe it's an impact fund. Right. Maybe it's a fund that invests right. internationally. Cashmere fund only invests domestically. Um, so, uh, it's possible that we stop taking contributions to the cashmere fund, but I, I don't anticipate it. I say it's going to roll forever with its its current thesis, and we will have another fund that rolls with various other flavors. Um, with different for our investor base. That's really cool, and then that starts to get even to more diversification, right? Where it's like I can be X twenty percent in cashmere, forty percent in fund X, and then another forty percent in fund Y, or something like that, where that's so fascinating. Why haven't people done this before? <laughs> really good question. If So put yourself in the position of a, a GP of a venture fund. Yep. You're working with, so you already have your fund raise and you have a few dozen LPs, yep. okay? Yep. Imagine the, the, the anticipated headache of saying, hey, Mr. GP, instead of dealing with 50 to 100 people, I want you to deal with thousands of people. All of Got it. They don't want to, okay? Yeah, the yeah, other yeah, thing yeah. is a regulation D fund structure accounts for carried interest. So a GP is making their money on fees and they have a great lifestyle, but the GP um, is going to have a really hard time giving up carried interest. The fee structure right. of Sweater operates much more like your personal uh, financial advisor that has your money in you know, uh, 
the stock market or, or a robo-advisor with, with Wealthfront. It's uh, a standard annual fee based on the, the value of the portfolio. Yep. Um, so our fee structure is more in line with that. And it's easy to understand for the retail investor. Uh, but a GP is just not going to give up carried interest and have to deal with yeah. the headache of more people. So, yeah. Um, and really, Jesse cracks the nut on what fund structure the SEC would approve and the technology that would be needed to make it scalable with thousands of people. So uh, hats off to Jesse for, for doing that. Let's go, Jesse. That's amazing. Where did, do, you, do you know the genesis of the name? Why is uh, it called Sweater? Yeah, it's, a, it's another good story. I feel like we should go back and make up a better one. Um, but a lot of... <laughs> There's definitely, to be fair, there's internal stories and external stories at Triple Whale. We have uh, why it's called Triple Whale, the real story, and then what we actually say externally facing. So don't feel bad. You're not alone. So picture uh, a session, you know, this was before my time of uh, Jesse, Chad, and I don't know who else was in the room riffing on business ideas. And they were saying, how do we make fun of the sweater, or sorry, of the VC a sweater vest. Oh, uh, that's amazing. Um, or yes. how do we make fun of the, <laughs> you know, Patagonia vest? And Yeah, of course. Um they landed on sweater and I personally love it. It's um that's amazing. Everyone, you know, it's memorable. Every winter I get text messages saying like uh so I've been here two winters now, you know, uh the last of last winter and then this winter. Um and uh well, wait, no. Yeah, no, so all of last winter and then the first part of this winter um, where they're like, hey, I just saw the sweater and I thought of you. It's like that's the kind of brand that you want is when people are seeing yeah. things in their environment. It makes them think of you. And uh, yep. so it's been a great name for us. That's a great story. That that should be external facing. That's amazing. It's because it's also very much so um, aligned with kind of the ethos that you guys are like. It's a bit of, you know, uh, you're cutting against the grain, so to speak. So it's, it, I think that's a fantastic story. Um, what has been one of your favorite or most interesting uh, deployments that you guys have invested in? Or like uh, some one of your most interesting or favorite investments? Uh, I, I have a few really good ones. I'll stick to the ones that we've already announced publicly. We have some that we've made that haven't quite made it to the the announcement yet. Not breaking news. Not, not breaking, breaking news, news on the yet. podcast. You're no. killing me, Cash. You're <laughs> killing me. The listeners are gonna they're gonna ride me for it. Yeah. Uh, so thinking of this audience, um, I don't know who's listening, but here are two companies that affect everyone. Okay. The first one is called After.com. It's one of the first funds out of the cash, first investments out of the Cashmere Fund. And they do end-of-life services. And I mean when someone dies, okay? Yeah. Um, over 50% of people die in hospice care. Um, yeah. Cremation is by far the most popular choice uh, for end-of-life services today. It's And that's different and unique to those who are now passing away than it was previously. And um, so families are getting stuck in a situation where a family member passes away in hospice, Hospice gives me three to five hours to find a funeral care, a funeral home to assume care of my decedent, my family member, because of health regulations and all of these things, right? Like, it's expected that you have a plan in place. And if you don't, that you get one in hours, okay? Um, oh, my gosh. So you have grieving family members going to funeral homes and being upsold on all of these services that maybe they don't want or need, things like caskets. Uh, large funeral services that people only attend yeah. because they have to. Um, uh, even things like choosing uh, an embalmed, you know, casket service as opposed to a cremation service. That yep. this is how these family businesses and big funeral work, right? They make money by sending mailers and upselling everyone who comes into the door. It's yep. a bad place to be in as a consumer. After has built a tech platform that you can go on there and and uh, uh, obtain at need services for someone who's already passed away or pre need services for for yourself or loved ones, and it's all transparent. Transparent pricing. It is you know seven times cheaper. Over I don't know the exact recent numbers. I know that when I was first looking at it, it was uh, 
depending on what baseline you're comparing it to. We're, we're talking several orders of magnitude cheaper than going to a funeral home. Yeah. And the tech enables them to you be updated every step of the way, the same way you know that uh, your Amazon package is being delivered. Why can't you know yep. about something that's so much more meaningful and personal as someone like a loved one? Um, in the future, After is going to be the company that serves the preferences of the co- the, the Gen Xers, the Millennials, the Gen Zs yep. of yep. what they want the end of their life to look like. Things like... If you can save $10,000 on your funeral, you could throw a massive party for your family with that. Or you could donate $10,000 to something you care about. And uh, so maybe I've talked too long on that one, Um, but a really great company. The other one is True Footage, which is home appraisals. Anyone who buys or sells a home knows home appraisals and, and how stressful and painful they can be. The reason why they're stressful and painful is because banks, when they order an appraisal from an appraisal company, again, these are different parties. The lender and the appraiser have to be, you know, have to have a degree of separation between them sure. uh, as, as a third party. Uh, so when a bank orders an appraisal, it takes too long. And now you're negotiating on appraisal information at the very final hour of when you're supposed to buy this home, Right. So True Footage has built some really interesting technology that enables their appraisers to um, do uh, a lot more appraisals faster and more accurately than a, a traditional appraisal company. You can imagine a True Footage appraiser coming in with an iPad, videoing everything, and it automatically draws up all the plans. Uh, it reduces a lot of the bias introduced to the appraisal process, and the banks are yep. loving it. It's you know twice the turn twice as fast turnaround time, and it helps the um, loans from falling through. So really excited about. Wow, that's real. Those are really interesting, and they're based around kind of uh, events that are. Well, I guess home ownership isn't a a given, but you know end of life is definitely a given, and they're based around big life events. And it sounds like the just the cognitive load. So I, I, I lost my mom uh, a few years back and I can tell you anecdotally that being in a funeral home is the most awkward, weirdest sales like thing ever. They're trying to upsell you on urns and like all these things. And then you're going through your head. You're like, well, of course I love this person, but like, do I want to spend $20,000 just because of my ego or like it gets into these really, and to your point, like you're already in this horrible headspace anyways. And like, so that's really cool. Like that, that is a really cool service. And then obviously appraisals. We just had a, a big round of appraisals go through here in Austin last year that um, wrecked a bunch of people because all of our, all their taxes went up. But that's a really cool investment. That is awesome. And so, how do you guys do? People are you getting deal flow? Are you sourcing deal flow? How does it work? Um, we get deal flow from a few places. Uh, all VCs get deal flow from their own efforts, going out and finding startups. Yep. We do that too, yep. right? We're not yep. we're not sitting back and waiting for good deals to come to us. Um, but we do get a ton of great opportunities from investors in the Cashmere Fund. And that is so cool. So uh, there's been some great uh, companies. An investor in Sweater FinTech and Sweater Cashmere Fund brought true footage to us um how interesting so uh i i love that and then the other thing is is vcs that recognize the value we provide have been bringing you know they've been carving out pieces of the rounder they've been putting it our way and saying hey this is an interesting company i think they'd be a good fit for us and they've liked that um so a, a lot of our investments have come from other vcs as well that's dope that is really cool i love that people coming in and then are becoming not only a participant in the fund, but also um, get new deal flow. It's like, it's this beautiful symbiotic circle. I love it. Uh, Cash, you made it to the end of it. You ready for the rapid fire? Let's do it. All right. Um, Overrated, underrated, raising money. Overrated as a general thing, as a general thing. Okay, yeah, yeah, totally. Um, The flat irons, overrated, underrated. Underrated coming from a kid who grew up uh in um southern utah i just think that there's uh there's a lot of great things about it but sorry these are yeah, supposed it's to be so crazy fire. i'll i'll stop no no, no it's oh no i'm just a witness in your world i i it's just trippy because I've, I've 
they're beautiful, massive, and amazing. They're right in the middle of the city. It's so odd. It's like a, it's such a, such a unique thing. I love them. Uh, I, I'm a big fan of Boulder as well. Um, NFTs, overrated, underrated. Overrated. Overrated. Yeah, we're seeing all the, all the. I've always been of, on that mindset, by the way. So I feel pretty proud to be able to say that now. That you, because I've never on, changed. Huh? Yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I've I've always had the same. I, yeah, it hasn't unlocked yet for me either. Um, Web three, overrated, underrated. Um, overrated. I will qualify by the saying. I think that Web three is a technology. I still am, am excited about and will invest in in my career. Um, Web three as a. Uh, like we have not invested in a Web3 company in the Cashmere Fund, right? And I think it's because yep. a lot of the models were overrated um, that I was totally seeing at least you. at that time. Yeah, I'm totally with you. Um, YouTube, overrated, underrated? Underrated. Yeah, same. I think it's, YouTube, it's, it's, YouTube it's, when TikTok finally gets taken down by the U.S. government, YouTube is going to be the one that takes its place in their shorts. That's my personal opinion. But I totally agree with you there. And I think that... So there was some interesting data from Eric Sufert came out where uh, TikTok's year-over-year downloads are uh, like a third of what they were or something like that. But like maybe they're minus 33% delta. I might be messing the numbers up. Anyways, significant um, headwinds for them, which is really interesting. And we see that anecdotally where um, a lot of our biggest spenders that were spending a lot on TikTok are kind of pulling back a little bit. So it'll be interesting to see how it all shakes out. And to your point, there's some, some political effects some knock-on effects where people that want to have you know a beeline to the governor's mansion or something start pounding the pavement and saying hey get this stuff off of the the u.s networks etc cetera, etc cetera. so i'm with you there there's definitely some exposure risk to tiktok that um i think was always there but now feels very prescient where it's like this actually might happen yep uh camping overrated underrated i saw your your adventurous and by the beginning of the show, you you lived up to that moniker. But are you a big camper? I love camping. Um, I also Amazing. love ice fishing, which not a lot of people do. Really? Yes. Yeah. So, uh, Mountain West ice fishing is really special because you are up in the mountains and the trees, all of that. Um, but uh, you, you know, people are saying, "Oh, you're you're in Colorado. Do you ski?" And I was like, "Yeah, I do ski." But I love ice fishing. Okay, and I've done it my whole life. How, how interesting! That's so cool. Do you do it in the little shack, or you just you just out in the in the elements? Um, some people have little ice shacks sometimes, right? Yeah. So uh, the difference depends on wind. So I okay. go skiing, and they're out in the elements, and of course you're moving yep. and you're being more athletic, so you're warmer. But uh, I felt similarly ice fishing. I'm not necessarily cold, um, as long as you're yeah. dressed well. But when the wind blows, you definitely want a nice tent. Yeah, feel it. Okay. That's so interesting. Um, this is kind of a weird question, but how important do you think retail is to D2C companies? I think it's becoming more and more important all the time, especially as yep. you get into like seed series A where we start to invest. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be retail, but it has to be another channel. Um, so well put. So, and, there, and there's a few reasons for that. Um it's not just like let's say that you're a d2c channel and you're you're acquiring customers cheaply like let's just say that you haven't been affected by the ios changes or some of the other headwinds that other companies are experiencing it's still important to have multi-channel because there's getting me more and more tools that show that other channels actually amplify online spend Yep. yep and uh i think that um to stay ahead of that innovation curve, being omni-channel is going to be important. So, and it's not just retail. I, I've seen some uh, people use things like partnerships, collaborations, yep. Um, yep. even even uh, corporate merchandise are just going to be more yep. over time. Yeah, I love that. And again, anecdotally, what we're seeing. Um, usually when you start to get to that kind of 10, $20 million run rate to your point of like a, that series a series B investment, um, you start to tap out the D to C or there starts to become diminishing returns. Um, 
shipping and pick and pack starts to get really expensive. So it's much better to just send freight to Whole Foods or Target or something like that versus getting paper cut it constantly with these shipping rates. So we're seeing that kind of the the next step change in growth for those D2C darlings is either Amazon, wholesale, retail, some, to your point, some other omni-channel presence that allows them to really proliferate. And I mean, so one of my biggest uh, brand crushes is Liquid Death. And Liquid Death started pure D2C. And now they don't even sell, first of all, water is super heavy. What a terrible product to ship. Um, but they don't even sell any of their uh, product or water on um, their site. It's all merch, which is, it's really fascinating to see. Um, okay. A couple more questions. Favorite meal and why? Favorite meal. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I will just, I will answer that question by saying this. I do not eat sweets. Not really. Not because I don't like sweets um, or it's not even for health reasons. It's just that I grew up in, you know, on a farm. My dad cooked all the meals, two brothers. We ate meat and potatoes every day and um, not necessarily potatoes, but a meat and a vegetable every day. So, I just don't yeah. eat dessert. Um, I'm not super picky as far as like meals, but I eat three square. I don't like snacking. Um, so that just comes to what I'm used to doing. And I do drink a glass of milk with every meal. Uh, no, oh, you are really, the farm boy. Yeah. Oh, um, I love it. That's amazing. <laughs> that ha- I can just see you sitting down with all these sophisticated VCs and there's all this pomp and circumstance and then cash gets his little glass of milk. That's oh, amazing. I, I would give one at a restaurant. I love it. But uh, I do, <laughs> my, my three-year-old and I go through four gallons of milk a week between the two of us. Oh my gosh. Yeah. That is incredible. Um, okay. Favorite place travel to and why? Um, I like anything within six hours of my house. Uh, oh, really? Yeah, I don't like to go super far. I mean, I've lived in Peru and I spent some time in India. I've been to Europe with my wife. Um, but uh, when I take time off, I want to maximize the time that I'm actually off and not getting to the place. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Our favorite place by far was a place called Lake Powell. Yep. Um, you know this in, in Arizona because you're close to Arizona, enough. yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But Lake Powell is uh, definitely... It, probably the most underrated place to go visit in the world, especially if you like wakeboarding, skiing, wake surfing, yep. any yep. of that. I'm pretty, it's the biggest man-made lake, right? It's man-made, wasn't it? It is man-made. I'm not correct. Um, yeah, I'm Colorado pretty sure. River. It's, it's up. Yep. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful though. Really cool. Big red canyons, beautiful water. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it's just, it's a really cool place. Uh, okay, last question and we'll wrap up. If you could have dinner with three people, dead or alive, fictional or non-fictional, who would they be? So you're sitting at a four-place table. You're sitting at the head. There's three invites you get to send out. Who's getting the invite from Cash? Good question. Uh, I would, I would want for a historical leader, George Washington. Oh, it's, let's go. Like, there's a few reasons for that. One is, um. I think there's a lot of lore around George Washington that I would just want to yep. know, right? Yep. And there's other people around that era that are also interesting, but his position probably gave him insights that I could ask about other people too at that time. It would be super yep. interesting. Uh, the second would probably, from like a business perspective today, I would love to, this is super cliche, but if I could sit down with Elon Musk and understand what's going yeah. on with Twitter, that that would be I, I say that one simply because um it would be the the best party conversation after the fact oh, that I could have. Like 100%. this is what he said, this is what the news has said, this is what's really going on. And like so the well cloud put. that comes from being on the inside scoop would be really interesting. And then given that like, you know, this isn't something that I talk about in my work or anything like that, but personally I'm a religious person and yeah. I would love to go back and talk to one of the apostles in the New Testament. Yeah. Um, yeah. There's a lot there historically that the pieces don't fit together perfectly in the historical record narrative, right? right? And as a fairly intellectual person, and I'm fairly critical, even as a religious person, I'm very critical of history and religion and, and all that. But I just think that, that those conversations would be super fascinating for me as, as a person. So... 
That's beautiful, man. You got you got your spiritual, you got your crazy business person, and then you have some some historical kind of uh, context as well as uh, one of the you know leading politicians of his day, if not the leading politician. I mean, you're you're the number one. You're starting a whole nation. It's kind of crazy and coming yeah. across the Potomac and like all that. Like to your point, there's there's so much lore around him as well that uh, I think. And I think that's a pretty great pick too, because you can get some Benjamin Franklin. Some, yeah, he had the skinny on everybody around as well. He so did it's it. just a lot, a lot going on there. Cash, this has been so much fun. I love it. Tell people how they can get involved in sweater. What can they do? How do they get involved? Where can they follow you? This time is yours, my friend. Um, I am on LinkedIn and Twitter personally. So if you want to connect with me, do that. Um, download the app. Uh, it's just called Sweater on the App Store or the Play Store. Um, and you don't have to invest, but the investment is uh, minimum as small as 500 bucks. And uh, when you do do that, you will have opportunities to support or get more involved with any of our portfolio companies. We share job openings at these companies. We share opportunities you oh, can support, cool. whether it's B2B or, or consumer. And so um, I can't iterate enough how low and how exciting it is this barrier to entry is now and uh i just i want as many people to have that chance as possible if if people want to get involved i love that so go download the app sweater on ios and android go throw some money in if you feel the need and then follow some investments and then watch cash just print you money um this is fantastic cash thank you so much for taking the time out Uh, i know we had some scheduling issues at the beginning so i really appreciate all of your grace and flexibility um, this was just super, super fun. Um, if you're ever out in Austin, uh, give us a shout. We have a really cool office here. Love the tour around, take you out to dinner, possibly grab a glass of milk, you know how it goes. That sounds great. <laughs> Amazing. All right, folks, if you want to get more involved at triple well, it's triple com. We also have a fantastic yeah. newsletter that goes out every Tuesday, Thursday called whale mail. You can subscribe right at triple com slash whale mail. Then we also have another a great podcast, our sister show work. called ad spend. It's me and Ashvin Milwani. The CMO over at Avi, we go into tactics, strategies, and what's working. So be sure to subscribe there. Cash, amazing stories, amazing knowledge, really eloquent. I really, again, appreciate the time. Thanks so much. And that's it, folks. That's another ROAS in the books. Thanks for joining. If you did enjoy the show, be sure to share it, like it, subscribe. You know know all the things to do. All right, folks, that's it. Thanks so much. Bye-bye.